Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. On our last supplemental episode, I talked about our efforts in past seasons, and particularly this year on the podcast, to interrogate the text and subtext of the Trek franchise, and the way in which Trek is inherently political, and how it tackles the issues of our modern era. And today's show will be the first in a series of supplemental episodes where we look specifically at the socioeconomic and political realities of our current age, and the ways in which Trek reflects our modern world. At first glance, there seems to be a dearth of similarities between Trek's then and our now. Trek was, of course, specifically engineered to be a future free from the societal unrest and racial discrimination of the era in which it was made, the 60s. It's always the other aliens who live in dystopias or follow the whims of an insane computer or judge a person by the color of one half of their skin. The Federation is a utopia, and in a utopia... Who needs protests or civil disobedience or political activism? Everything's perfect, right? But the reality is, Star Trek was born in an era of great unrest and great change, the 60s, and it's now returned to our screens at a moment of equal political import. And it makes me wonder, where are all the protests in Star Trek? Utopia or no, everyone in the Federation can't agree all the time about everything. And in a culture that's nominally free from censorship and committed to an open exchange of ideas, where are the dissenters? Even if it's just people who want a Taco Thursday instead of Taco Tuesday. Like, How do you express dissent in a socialist utopia? And can a franchise set in a socialist utopia effectively explore civil disobedience? These are the questions that I brought to Tay Phoenix. Tay is a singer-songwriter and activist who uses her music to inspire others to fight against authoritarianism and white supremacy and economic inequality. During our discussion, we talked about the infrequent but powerful scenes of protest on display in the Trek universe, the way that the economics of scarcity influences political thought in the 21st and 24th century, the way that social injustice gets explored in genre spaces, and how people can put the ethics of Trek into practice to spur their own activism. It's a great discussion. Tay really knows her stuff, both political and Trek, and I learned a lot from it. I hope you do too. And speaking of activism and how you can get involved, Tay has partnered with other activists and Trek personalities to create Trek the Vote. Trek the Vote is a grassroots, fan-driven volunteer drive whose mission is to connect American Star Trek fans with nonpartisan groups who are working to ensure a fair, equitable electoral process in our communities using the principles and work ethic we've all learned from Star Trek. Some of their partners include Election Protection, who assists voters with registration, absentee and early voting, and helping voters overcome obstacles to their participation, as well as Power the Polls, an initiative to recruit diverse and low-risk poll workers, that is, low health risk to coronavirus infection, to keep our nation's polls open and running smoothly during the election. Here's how it works for you. You go to trekthe.vote and join Starfleet. You accept your mission. These missions can include getting training as a poll worker, helping counter disinformation and providing information, protecting voter rights, attending to voter needs, and protecting the voting results. 
They also have on the Trek the Vote site a suite of tools to help you personally get ready to vote, like registering or checking that you're registered, looking up who's on your ballot, and finding your polling place. And they've got Trek stars on board this initiative, like Andrew Robinson, Armin Shimmerman and his wife Kitty Swink, Gates McFadden, John Billingsley, J.G. Hertzler, and more. Do it! Go to trekthe.vote, sign up, see how you can get involved, be a part of your democracy, put your Trek ethics to the test. Your Trethics, I gotta write that one down. And please, please vote in this year's election. Okay, that's it for me. Let's get this ball rolling. Enjoy my talk with Tay. Check out her work at tayphoenix.com. Go to trekthe.vote. And with that, let's get underway. My guest on the show today is Tay Phoenix. Tay is a protest singer and songwriter, a filmmaker, and a political activist. You can find her music at tayphoenix.bandcamp.com and on YouTube at Tay Phoenix. Tay, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Permission to come aboard? Permission is granted. Thank you, sir. Great to have you aboard. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> I always ask new guests on the show how they first became Star Trek fans. How did you first discover Star Trek? Well, I had a nanny when I was growing up who was a fan of the original series, and she got me into that a little bit, but mostly um, it was the next generation that we would watch together. Yeah. And I mean, I remember being, you know, I was really little. I was probably, you know, five or six at that point. So I didn't really, I wasn't really tracking what exactly was going on. Right. But right. I knew they were having an adventure in space. Yeah. <laughs> and that was cool enough to like occupy my imagination. And it just took off from there. Yeah. Space adventure is, is enough for a lot of people. I know it was when I was young. And then as I got older, I was like, whoa, this show is about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. It's not just a space adventure. Yeah. Right. Uh, what's your background with music? How long have you been uh, performing or singing songwriting? I mean, I've been I've been singing since I was a little kid. I mean, mm -hmm. I think as kind of as long as I can remember, I've been able to, you know, carry a tune and imitate what I hear people doing vocally. And uh, my parents started me out. They like I had a little piano as a kid and I used to pluck out, you know, songs, yeah. um, you know, little 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 things that I heard or things that were in my imagination. And, you know, then my parents started getting me voice lessons and piano lessons and um and then I learned how to play the guitar as an adult. Um, actually, I learned how to play the guitar in five months um, for a wow. show. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, um, I applied some of that old Janeway work ethic and yeah. just got it done. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's, that's kind of been my, my background in music is, you know, uh, got into it as a kid and then continued as, as an adult to really be invested in it. Five months. That's amazing. I've been trying to learn guitar for years and I still can't play the guitar. It, was it a, a program or, or like an intensive guitar boot well, camp? So what ended up happening, um, there's a there's a, a pretty prestigious regional theater here in the Seattle area called the Village Theater. Mm. And I'd sort of been dying to work there for ages and ended up getting called back and called back and called back in auditions for a show called Pump Boys and Dinettes. And this yeah, oh, I know it. I know it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, uh, this this show was this was in the the auditions and callbacks were in uh, 2015 and the show was in 2016. It, it's called a quadruple threat musical and what they do is uh, you know so you, as an actor you have to sing act dance and play an instrument. Right. And I auditioned on keys because that's the instrument that I you know had been most familiar with for years. And when they when they cast me and they gave me uh, an understudy role, I was understudying both female leads. And they said, well. Here's the thing. The guy who's 
who's playing keys in this show is uh, his name is Levi Christ and Levi won the Tony for playing Jerry Lee Lewis in the uh, original million dollar quartet on Broadway. So we don't need you to play the piano. Yeah. What we need you to learn how to do is play the guitar professionally in five months. Can you do it? Yeah. And I was like, why? Yes. Yes, I can. And so I got a teacher and I got a, I got myself a, a guitar. I 100% did not deserve like way nicer than some beginner, you know, typically gets sure. to have. Yeah. And I practiced for five hours a day, every day until my fingers bled. Wow. But I was ready and I did it. I went on, I went on as both, uh, both female leads. Oh, um, really? Okay. Multiple times. And, uh, and ended up, ended up, uh, holding it down, which I'm really proud of. Was it a long run then? How long did the show go? Show ran for, Golly, uh, I mean, it's been a few years, but we opened in September and closed in early December, I want to say. So it was sure. several months. That's wow. That's amazing. And I, I guess, uh, you know, getting something nice, getting a nice guitar is a good motivation too. For like, <laughs> why did I buy this thing? I got to learn to play it in my, uh, also, I, I have to be, I might have to be on stage and play it sure. in front of a big audience. Yeah. Like that's a motivator. Uh, in my uh, performing and acting career, I was like a two and a half threat, maybe. <laughs> like I could sing, <laughs> act, and I can move, maybe not dance. And I was in a show, uh, it was a uh, Breck show, where they wanted people to play instruments. And so I was like, oh, I'll play the guitar, and then quickly realized I was uh, in over my head. But the whole point mm -hmm. was is that they didn't want like a guitar virtuoso. It was a sort of a folk show, and so they wanted it to be not necessarily super competent, but still somewhat musical. And I could deliver on that. Yeah, and that's kind of about where I ended up being, too. Well, I've been uh, listening to your music and checking out some of your releases, and I'm amazed to hear that you'd only recently launched a career as a singer-songwriter because your work is fantastic. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, the songs that I've heard of yours are just, they're very catchy, they're very well-written, uh, and they're moving. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you need me to say, but keep it up. I, thank you. I, I appreciate it. I intend to. <laughs> uh, and you've moved into a, a role or a career as an activist and a protest singer. What was the progression for you moving from performing to using those talents specifically to protest and call attention to social issues? Well, I've always been political. Yeah. Um, it was just sort of figuring out how to cross the streams um, that, that came later. So, you know, I was prior to uh, the events of 2015, 2016, my activism looked like there's a shopping center in my neighborhood that was using a hideous uh, security company, a security company that had a track record of human rights abuses around the world, mm -hmm. specifically targeting black and brown people. Mm -hmm. they, they had lethally armed security guards in a situation that just didn't call for them. And I had had a run in with one of those security guards where he uh, indicated to me in no uncertain terms that he believed that my black and brown neighbors are a threat and a problem. Okay. And I was, um, I was really exercised about that and contacted the owners of the shopping complex and complained and had my friends do the same and, and, and built a relationship with their community relations team. And over time we were able to convince them that they needed to segue out of using that, um, that security company and that they needed to have, a security company that had some roots in the community there. Yeah. Um, and so they eventually did that. And now they have basically, it's almost all black security guards. It's a black owned security firm and the guards are not lethally armed. 
Wow. And, you know, that, that complex, like we have, you know, there's four middle and elementary schools and one high school within a, you know, a 15 block walking radius. And a lot of kids walk through that complex every day. So it was a, of immense concern yeah. um, that, you know, that these kids be, uh, be safe, um, you know, on this property. I'm, I'm really, I'm really, um, grateful that nobody was injured by this guy or, or anyone else there. So, so that's the kind of thing I was doing prior to, uh, prior to Trump, frankly, as much as I try <laughs> not to say his name. Yeah. Right. Um, but once, uh, you know, he came down that escalator and he started calling Mexicans and Latinx people and immigrants rapists. And he started, you know, just all of the, the fascist playbook, just, you know, rolling the whole thing out. And of course, being a Latina Jew, I'm like, I'm sitting here staring down the barrel of history and watching it. Like there's a mirror in front of me and I'm like, fuck. Yeah. Am I allowed to swear on this show? Uh, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, and all of, all of the alarm bells that have been sort of embedded in me, my whole life started ringing. Yeah. And I decided, you know, that, and that's, that's sort of when some of the some of the music like I had been, I mean, I'd been writing music about social justice, but none of it felt good enough to, to, you know, bring into public hmm. yet. Yeah. But this is all of a sudden that point of view really firmed up in yeah. a way that let it be, you know, I don't want to say authentic enough, but just, it was less, it was less cerebral and it became more like, it just became more present in the way that music needs to be. Yeah. And that's when I started to share my music at protests and, and then share my music at more protests and then get invited to share my music at more. And that's just kind of how it, how it became, um, became its own, its own thing. Yeah. I think when people hear the term protest singer, they're probably thinking of classic figures like Woody Guthrie or Joan Baez or, or Pete Seeger, but protest singing hasn't gone anywhere. It's still alive. And even mainstream music today has artists politically expressing themselves more than ever Absolutely. before. Absolutely. Yeah. And as it should be. Yeah, it just seems like, you know, I think that obviously pop music is still popular music, but in the days of people like Joan Baez or Bob Dylan, you know, pop music was about the doggy in the window or, or what have you, or a surf and safari. And so the fact that people like uh, like Taylor Swift, you know, or people like Lady Gaga can uh, feel like they can make entire songs, entire albums about sort of attacking certain issues is, I think that's a good sign. Yeah, I do too. Um, speaking of, um, other performers, who are your musical influences? Oh my God. It's a pretty broad list. Um, you know, as, uh, I think lately I've been going back to some of my like earliest roots and listening to like Alanis Morissette and, mm, okay. um, Jewel and, you know, Ani DeFranco and Tori Amos mm. and, you know, really like kind of nurturing the eighth grade girl in me. <laughs> That's, uh, <laughs> That was, and, and let's be clear, that's like really where my Star Trek obsession took off too. So it, oh, yeah. it goes, okay. Okay. Hand hand. oh my God. Oh my God. Like Voyager um, and Lilith Fair, just put those two together. Boy, yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. Voyager and Lilith Fair. Um, and, uh, and so just getting that, uh, that sense of that part of, of my musical identity again. Um, you know, Bonnie Raitt is huge for me. Mm -hmm. Um, that, you know, that's like one of my, um, one of my, my biggest, longest standing influences just as a little kid, like listening to her, 
I think I wore out four copies on, on cassette of Nick of Time. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so, you know, um, and then, you know, like these days it's, you know, I listen to a lot of Delta Ray. I listen to a lot of Grace Potter. Um, I listen to um, uh, Patty Griffin. I listen to, and then, you know, I, I'll turn around and be listening to like, Snow the Product and um, Wiala and uh, Janelle Monet. You know, like it's just, it's very, I'm very, I, I love, basically, I just love music. Like I love music and I love listening to all genres of music, but like it really, it really depends on like where my head is going. Mm-hmm. Um, and also like what I'm working on in terms of what covers I'm learning, because I like to deploy covers um, politically. So like um, I did a cover of Sarah Bareilles' Brave. Mm-hmm. Um, where I, I was I was using that as the sort of my anthem for the remove Trump movement in DC back in January of this year, which feels like January of five years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, and I, I got arrested playing that song in the in the um, Russell Rotunda in the Senate. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, just calling on Republican senators to like screw your freaking courage to the sticking place, guys. Like, yeah. yeah. Only person who listened to me was Mitt Romney. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> and that's supposed to be like when I think about what's going on now, you know, with the two conventions, of course, having come and gone and people trying to communicate to their base or to somebody. It seems like we're always trying to appeal to our base, but sometimes we have to appeal to the other side, too. Like, what yeah. what's going on? Is this what you want to do? Is this really it? Why not come over here? And I don't, I don't see Mitt Romney is Romney is such an interesting character um, mm-hmm. because I, I, he is, I think, he actually has a moral center. I don't necessarily always agree with his moral center, yeah, but I think he has one. Whereas I think what we've learned about the Republican Party now is that all of this talk about, you know, deficits and and pulling your yourself up by your bootstraps and low taxes, all of it, it was absolutely for the most part, a facade and plausible deniability for just continuing to hold up systemic racism and wealth supremacy. There was never any intention of anybody doing better. Um, and, and I'm not saying that of all Republicans. I know some really, really, really decent former Republican conservatives yeah. who are looking at the rest of the party and going, holy shit, I was surrounded by Nazis and I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. And I I think that Mitt Romney is kind of in that boat. Um, and I, hmm. he's, he's gotta be looking around and going, do I even want to stay a Republican at this point? Um, so, you know, I think, I think that the, I think that what we really have to understand is that there are people who really believed in that. They really believed that lower taxes were going to make life better for everybody. Yeah. And then there were the people who knew that it wouldn't. Yeah. And the people who knew that it wouldn't now, the people who didn't know are looking at them like, what are you? Yeah. Why? Like, so it's got to be kind of a, a weird reality bending situation for them. Yeah, I suppose it must. I mean, when I think of somebody like Mitt Romney's a weird guy to figure out because I think of rich people as rich first. And often mm-hmm. I think of uh, of politicians as being politicians first. But just in terms of him trying to reform health care in Massachusetts and some of the other things that he said in opposition to the uh, the sort of Republican platform. Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's there's hope for him yet. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Republicans and their weird decisions, uh, we are recording this at a time which is uh, a week after the 2020 Republican National Convention. 
And of course, it's during a period of time in which we've seen continuing violence against people of color, the people protest in their names, violence has been done against them as well. Uh, the shooting of Jacob Blake and the murder of protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who were protesting the shooting and police brutality that happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and events like that happening across the country. And it seems like the situation in America is intractable to a lot of people. Um, and a lot of people I know who enjoy Star Trek, they like it for its message of equality and acceptance mm -hmm. and empathy. And I think it's a vision of the future that we can all admire. But unfortunately, Star Trek as a work of fiction is not a blueprint for how we can create the utopia that we see on screen. And there's times that I wonder if the selflessness and the altruism that we see in the characters of Trek if that altruism is more fictional than any of their wonderful sci-fi technology, like can we ever reach the kind of societal harmony that the citizens of the Federation have? Can we ever? I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I, yes, we absolutely can, yeah. but it's going to take absolutely every single one of us deciding that that is what we want more than anything else. Yeah. Um, so yes, we can, but only if we do. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Okay. That's a good um, addition to yes, we can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's, you know, um, I, I think that what we, the thing that we have to overcome is the notion that there isn't enough. Capitalism has so inculcated in us the sense that, uh, there are only, there's a finite pile of resources and only so many people can get them and the rest are just screwed. And that's just the way it is. Sorry. Yeah. When the reality is that. There is more than enough for everybody to be okay. We just don't talk about the piles and piles and piles of resources being hoarded by a few very wealthy individuals. Yeah. And if we started to really talk about what that would mean meaningfully, if we distributed that in an equitable way, um, then, then we, then absolutely we could have the world of Star Trek. We could have that world tomorrow. Um, if we all decided that that was what was important to us, but it's going to take each of us deciding that it's more important to us than our own lives to make that world happen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we can end world hunger right now. Like we've got yes. the food and the resources to do that. There's no profit in Today. it for the people who have the resources. And it's the same thing with, we could defund the police. We could have an end to state violence right now, but the people that don't like minorities don't want the police disarmed. And let's face it, the police themselves like oppressing minorities. They certainly do. They certainly I, do. I watched the talk that you gave about civil disobedience and in it, you talk about, you know, the natural impulse that we have to help each other and the way that impulse gets suppressed when we're confronted with problems that don't directly affect us. And the way that we have to make the, the helping impulse scale to systemic issues and it's weird. Somehow the Federation figured that out. They closed that gap. The Federation has these near limitless resources. And one of their main goals is to apply those resources to everyone who needs them and lift everybody up in society. And I wish that we could be more like the fictional Federation in that regard. Yep. Yep. I'm actually, so one of, one of the things that I'm in the middle of working on now, and hopefully by the time this podcast airs, it will be in, in full swing is, um, working to bring some of those Federation values into our elections process this yeah. time around. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, uh, because we have a lot of volunteer roles to fill. We have a lot of poll worker roles to fill. Yeah. And uh, all it takes 
to activate a Trekkie is a good mission briefing and a chance to wear our uniform. Yeah. And so, <laughs> right. Yeah. And so if I, if I can be a poll worker and they let me wear my Starfleet uniform and it's like, hello, I'm from the United Federation of Planets. How may I help you today? Sure. Like, you know, can I help you? Here's your ballot. There's the voting machine. Please let me know if you have any questions. Like, and bringing that, that like spirit of, you know, helpfulness and respect for democracy and respect for diversity and individuality and like all of it, Let's bring that to the table. Let's get Trekkies to fill all of these roles all across the country. We have 16 million Trekkies in the United States. Yeah. If, if just 1% of American Trekkies decided that we wanted to help make this a free and fair election, we could absolutely do that. And I'm not talking about trying to make, I mean, obviously I know the outcome that I want. I think most Trekkies probably share that desire. But more than anything else, more than any outcome, what we want is an election where everyone's voice is heard. Yeah. You know, I think that there's, more to be done around activating Trekkies to try to help bring about this like fight for the future, man. If this is the world that you want, then let's fight for it. Absolutely. I know people, I know Trekkies who would absolutely do that. So I think you've got, you've got people out there who want to help. Uh, a lot of this podcast, especially in the last year or two has been myself and uh, guests like yourself interrogating the utopia of the Federation and trying to both quantify the main pillars of their evolved society and see what they did, you know, to fix things that we should be looking at. And inequality seems to be a big one, if not the main one. I had an author named Manu Sadia on the show a little while ago who wrote a book called Treconomics, which is nominally about the ins and outs of the putative economy of the Federation. But his ultimate thesis in the book turns out to be that, you know, if we eliminate scarcity and economic inequality, you know, capitalism, nearly... Mm -hmm. All of our remaining ills would find themselves with relatively easy solutions, but we'd have to accept that solution. And it seems like people don't want to accept that answer. And it seems insane to me because so many of us don't, none of us profit essentially off of mm -hmm. capitalism. I mean, I understand capitalists and the, you know, the hypothetical 1% not wanting to see the system change, but there are people who would literally die, would literally lay down their lives to protect the system that doesn't benefit them in any way. They yep. get sick, you know, they'll die anyway because they're not getting support. And I just wonder why people are so addicted to the drug of capitalism. Golly, um, it's like the it's like Ketracel White, man. You just it's really hard to pick once, once you're, reference. You I mean, it. when you're... <laughs> When you are genetically engineered and raised from a, oh, an boy. infant gem Hadar to be addicted to the Ketracel White, it's a fucking hard thing to kick. I mean, yeah. we got that one, that one first, right? Yeah. I think his name was, was it wasn't Ramadaclan, and that's a different first. But um, but there's that one first gem Hadar who somehow had like a genetic abnormality that let him kick the white. But right. for most of them, it was just a non-starter. Yeah. Um, I think some of it is that people have been lied to so much about what socialism is. Mm. And it was really interesting listening to the Republican National Convention last week, um, or last week when we were taping this anyway, uh, where, um, you know, they, they were hitting that, be afraid of socialists, be afraid of anarchists. And yes. nobody really knows what socialism and anarchism are. Yeah. And so I was on Twitter, I put my hand up, I'm like, socialist here, Joe Biden? not a socialist. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> I promise you he is, he is definitely not like, he's not the candidate I wanted. Yeah. Um, I wanted Elizabeth Warren. 
he is not the candidate I wanted. He is the candidate I will vote for, but there is daylight between him and me on this. As a socialist, you are not voting for someone who is going to institute this socialist apocalypse that everyone is trying to convince you is so bad. Um, they, they've done, I mean, this is the thing, is capitalists are great at marketing and they are successful at marketing their ideas. And the idea that they have marketed in this case is that socialism is what you have uh, you know, what you got in Venezuela, what you got in, you know, in communist Russia, like that this is that that social programs and socialized medicine and socialized housing and the kinds of things that sane countries the world over have in abundance yeah. um, are, you know, are somehow going to lead us down this path. Um, and they, they just, it's, it's just been well marketed the idea and, and, and the capitalists are just sitting back there counting their money. Yeah. And the weird thing is, you know, I want to talk about um, the two-part DS9 episode, uh, Past Tense. I was just about to bring it up. <laughs> and, I, I, and I want to talk about it in greater detail, but the sort of like, you know, summary or point that I want to make out of it is that I see so many Star Trek fans who cite Past Tense as this prophetic warning. And they agree that like the Bell Riots and Cisco's involvement in them were essential to changing that world. And then those same fans get on Facebook and they're like, oh, no, not the Lake Street Target. Stay out of the Target, looters. They literally cannot understand that the people that they support on their favorite show are the same as the people that they see on their streets. And I don't know if you run into this online, but the biggest mystery to me of the 21st century so far is not whether there's life on Mars or when the next Taylor Swift album is coming out. It's the existence of conservative Star Trek fans. Like in yeah. a, I'm in a lot of groups on social media about Star Trek, and when somebody tries to complain about SJWs and Star Trek or that the Federation isn't socialist, it's like, what show are you watching, dude? This has been a thing since 1966. I mean, you watch the. I'm thinking of the episode where where Quark, uh, you know, it's it, Quark has his. Uh, oh God, it's called Body Parts, mm. and and Quark is. Um, you know, he's misdiagnosed with a fatal illness, sells his vacuum <laughs> yes. desiccated remains on the Ferengi's futures exchange. And all of it is brought, bought up by liquidator Bruns, who then shows up to attempt to collect and basically says, OK, well, you know, like you said, they were going to be alone six days. Yeah. Kill yourself. Like kill that's, yourself. It, so <laughs> yeah. and so Clark finally decides, like, the value of my precious life is greater than the sum of its latinum. Yeah. So here's your refund, Brunt. And Brunt goes, great, yank. And he pulls his business license. And all of a sudden, Quark is shut, shut for business. And every, everybody, all of his Federation friends show up and they're like, we need to store some furniture here. And, you know, I just, I got this box of Aldebaran whiskey and I really don't like Aldebaran whiskey. Here, you take it, Quark. And like, that's the, you know, that's the, that is the moment where we see like capitalism versus socialism. Capitalism says, Quark, your life is worthless unless you follow through on this thing, this financial transaction yeah. that you agreed to. Right. And the Federation is saying, Quark, here we are for you. We love you. You are a, you are a living Ferengi being and you are, have intrinsic and inherent value that has nothing to do with how much latinum your vacuum desiccated remains got on the Ferengi futures exchange. Here you go, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Right. So <laughs> Star Trek is absolutely, it's like a pitch for socialism. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, and I know conservative Star Trek fans. Um, and you know, I think a lot of them honestly are, a lot of it's about comfort. A lot of it's about privilege. 
Mm. And a lot of it is about the undiscovered country that privilege brings. Mm -hmm. Like I grew up pretty wealthy. My grandfather founded a plastics company right after World War II. You know, I have never wanted for anything a day in my life. Mm -hmm. And for a very long time, especially in my 20s, I felt quite entitled to everything that I had. And I was determined to believe that it was that, that it was my own merit and the merit of my family. And that if anybody, if people just worked hard, they would have what I had. And of course, all that went out the window um, as I started to, to study intersectional feminism. Um, and I think that for a lot of people, it's, I mean, I, I just remember it being uh, very jarring to recognize that it was, it was not my own merit that gave me what I had, that it was luck. And that if it was luck, it could be taken away. Um, and, and that if it was luck, then I was obligated to morally obligated uh, to make it more equitable. Um, and I think a lot of people don't have the tools to deal with shame and discomfort. That's not taught in our society. Yeah. So we do everything that we can to avoid feeling those feelings because we don't know how to deal with them. And, um, and Star Trek, you know, and this is the thing is I wish Star Trek had done more and would do more to teach us about that, to teach us about self-regulation. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we see the, we see the outward manifestation of, for example, Cisco's ability to self-regulate. I mean, oh my God, the things that Cisco gets put through. Yeah, yeah. And his and his ability to return to a sense of center um, in the face of that. I mean, just being widowed and being as fabulous of a father as he is while commanding a space station. I mean, talk about somebody who can manage himself, Yeah. right? And when confronted with his own foibles, Cisco takes a look at himself and changes. But we don't see the inner process of that. And I think it would be lovely if we could. I think it would be wonderful if, if we saw more exposition of that. Because if Star Trek could teach people to do that, yeah. I think you'd have, probably have fewer conservative Star Trek then. <laughs> yeah, I think you're probably right. And just you relating the story of your sort of self-realization, I wonder if depicting this utopia that they have, this economic you know, utopia and social utopia, I wonder if representing it in the way that they do, it serves obviously as an inspiration for people, but without having those circumstances within their story or their environment, they're not able to tell similar stories in which characters can have realizations like the ones, like the one that you did. Do you know what I mean? Right. I wonder if that's a limiting factor. I don't, I wouldn't want the utopia of the Federation to be harmed or degraded in some way, but since it's so perfect, maybe it's really tough. To, it's like how Gene Roddenberry never wanted the characters to fight or have conflicts. And it's like, are you for real, dude? Like we need to do, do a drama show here. Uh, right. Because the Federation's so perfect and says perfect, even playing field. Mm-hmm. It's hard to tell stories about characters going, wow, um, I do have a lot of privilege here. It's like, it's like Cisco talking about, um, there's that episode and I can't, I will not remember the name of it, but it's the one where, where they first actually meet the founders and the founders put them into those like stasis chambers and hook them up to sort of an internal uh, holodeck yes. and play out a scenario where the Federation is now like, you know, become part of the Dominion or signed a peace treaty with the Dominion. Yeah. And Cisco's having this conversation with a fictional Admiral Nachayev. Um, and, you know, he's saying it's easy to be an angel in paradise, but out yeah. here we have to, you know, you have to think. And so like to some degree, yes, like 
like starch because they're living in this utopia already we don't see the gritty edges of the utopia i, I mean deep space nine is really where we see so much of that right is we see yeah. um you know the edges of of the utopia we see section 31 like there's just so much there and we see it in voyager too i mean it's different because voyager you know they ha- they're facing a, a whole other set of problems being completely cut off mm-hmm. from any support um from starfleet and having to you know, figure out when to compromise Federation principles, um, <laughs> literally making a deal with the Borg. Yeah. Right. Like, you know? <laughs> no problem. Um, and, and so we see it, some of that there too, but like, you really don't understand the utopia until you're on the edges of it Yeah. and you recognize, and that's, and that's part of like, that's like, there's, if, if you want to get back to sort of very like basic spiritual traditions, like you really don't see the light until you understand the contrast of, of what it means to have the absence of that. Yeah. I think that's a real missed opportunity too, in the, the use of the Maquis uh, and their stories, you know, they're supposed to, when we first meet them in the episodes with Bernie Casey, we, we get this idea of what you're saying. Like we're really seeing people who are ostensibly good, but they are in this situation where they're not receiving the support that they need. And right. It's really moving, and then the McKee just kind of move into kind of a light bad guy or antagonist role, and we never really get to explore what it is like for them to live on the fringes of this great society and not be able to sort of participate in it. Um, and then, of course, they're on Voyager, kind of, but <laughs> they're only McKee for like an episode and a half, and then they're just kind of I mean, join the crew. And every now and again, they bring it back up, you know, for an episode, but yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's, yeah, they, they, they could have done so much more around, you know, the friction of integrating those two crews than they did. I mean, I, I take it all the way back to Dwarven 5, right? You've got um, this negotiation, like, so Picard's ancestor, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. is this, he's this, um, he's this general who is responsible for, you know, evicting, displacing seizing and colonizing land from indigenous people. Yeah, yeah. And and here Picard is being put in the same position on Dorvan 5 um because the Cardassians because the the peace treaty has redrawn the border. Yeah. Right? And and the imaginary nature of borders and the demilitarized zone and like all of these things like being being brought up in this episode um and you look and you and you think about you know there's all these indigenous people in this situation again. And then of course we have Chakotay and oh my God, talk about an unfortunate situation to have trusted the wrong cultural consultant <laughs> Yes. Um, in terms of, of how, how Chakotay's character is crafted. It would have been so, so much more impactful to have him be from a specific tribe yeah. to actually carry through a real culture Um rather than this amalgam. And I heard one explanation in fanfic that just, uh, I think really kind of knocked me on my heels. It was that, that uh, p- before the point at which humanity started moving in the right direction, indigenous people had been so eradicated that essentially what indigenous culture was in the 24th century was whatever they could piece together from what was left. And that mm. just shook me. That's chilling. Like, we cannot allow that to happen yeah for sure um and uh you know the but the just having having you know all of these indigenous people in the maquis the prevalence 
of Bajorans in the Maquis, right? Like looking at, okay, you've got the Maquis is colonized people fighting back. Yeah. And, and we don't, and it is a missed opportunity. It's a huge missed opportunity to tell important stories. And honestly, once, so I keep thinking about like, here are the, here are the shows I wish CBS would make. Okay. Right. Yeah. I wish CBS would make a show about colonized Bajor. Sure. I would, yeah, I wish CBS would make a show where we see what the Bajoran resistance was up against and what it really was like, what all those ore processing centers and refugee centers and the resistance cells in the mountains of Kendra province and whatever else, right? Like, let's see it. Show us that story. Show us how the Bajorans got rid of the Cardassians and explore colonization and decolonization and deep space nine did such a beautiful job of the complexities of that and some of the relationships that form i mean the fact that like zial existed in the first place right mm-hmm. like all mm-hmm. of that could be explored in such depth and it would be amazing um so that's a show i want them to make um i really want them to make uh and this is more uh about the frontiers of medical ethics, but I would love for them to do a Starfleet medical, like a, you know, like a hospital style show, like ER or house, Yeah. but, but Starfleet medical. And they're dealing with questions of medical and biological ethics. And they're dealing with questions of healthcare and access. And maybe it's, some, you know, it's maybe it's frontier related. Right. I mean, again, like I, I really wish that they would dive into that. I would love it if they would do something around, um, Janeway being in charge, like even if she's an occasional character, Right. Admiral Janeway is part uh, She maybe she's in, in charge of the Federation research di- research group and there's medical espionage going on. I mean, there's so much richness and potential there. And that could even tie in with the world of Picard. Like they have so many opportunities um, to, to do that kind of thing. And so I'm I'm I feel like right now and I'm so frustrated with what C- the way CBS is handling the things they are doing so much right and they're doing so much wrong. And I just really hope that they figure some things out. <laughs> yeah, I I think they're scared. I made the uh, comparison at the beginning of the show about how the idea of protest has moved into you know mainstream music, and I think that they could do the same thing with Star Trek, whereas Star Trek was the not the only show, but one of the only shows that was trying to tell these moral tales and these uh, tales of uh, social problems. Um, we got to go farther now, you know, and now that CBS mm-hmm. is and Star Trek is back and it's got good funding, like, yeah, we need to really step on it. And I think there's right. precedent for that. You know, we've got things like, you know, Jordan Peele's The Twilight Zone and the Love mm-hmm. Ca- Lovecraft Country, which I haven't seen yet, but is supposed to be really good. And Watchmen. And we're using these genre spaces to once again, really push forward these these tales of uh, social injustice. And yeah, I. I would like to see Trek do that as well. I think they're a little right. gun shy still. I think they're still going after the things that they think are sure hits. But I really like to see that uh, that kind of thing. I've, I'm still I'm still thinking about your Janeway idea because I had an idea about like a, a Starfleet Academy show, but that focuses also on the admiralty as well, which is in San mm-hmm. Francisco, and throwing Janeway into that sort of nest of vipers and her being the one good admiral and a bunch of bad morals and seeing how she deals with that. I would love. I mean. Just please, just give Kate Mulgrew some, give some scenery to just chew. Give her, give her to some do. scenery to chew, please, for yeah. the love of God. I just need more <laughs> Kate Mulgrew in my life. Yeah. I really, 
really do. <laughs> well, we supposedly wanted to talk about past tense, so let's do that. Um, sure. The, the listeners ought to know, I hope they know, but in case they don't, this is the episode where Cisco and Bashir are thrown back in time to the year 2024, and they are thrown immediately into a sanctuary district in San Francisco. Uh, the district is nominally there to provide housing and jobs for disadvantaged or indigent people, but when we see the inner workings of that system, it's revealed that it's grossly underfunded, largely ineffectual. Um, remind you of anything. And uh, there's no real political venue in that episode. They're not trying to make any kind of, I think we hear from the assistant of the governor of California or something like that. Um, we don't see any pres president or any executive try to defend the system, but it's easy to believe that their world is experiencing a similar crisis of support that we are encouraged mm -hmm. possibly by political leaders. Yes. Um, I mean, it's and and don't don't forget, Dax is also thrown, ba That's thrown back. That's right. In time in that episode. Yes, and I yeah. re I remember um, a friend of mine uh, more than a few years ago now um, explaining to me <laughs> that the whole Dax storyline in that episode is showing the privilege that she right. uh, is. You know, it, she assumes being a good-looking, uh, rich-seeming white person in this world, and also the way mm -hmm. that she manipulates it to try to save her friends who are have a British accent and is a black mm -hmm. guy. Yeah, right, right. It's well, incredible. and and Bashir is Bashir is also a person of color. I mean, you know, well, absolutely. Let's be, let's be yeah. real about that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, yeah, that is like. It's amazing to think, um, and I've now that I've started a Star Trek podcast, I've gone over this show uh, or these episodes uh, many times. But it's amazing to think that they were inspired initially both by the Attica Prison Riot, which, if listeners are unfamiliar with, look it up historically. There's an amazing documentary about the Attica Prison Riot on YouTube. Um, and they're also inspired by the homeless crisis in LA in the 90s. And I say the 90s, but it's an unresolved crisis. It's still present yep. today. And Iris Stephen Bear, one of the writers of the episode, was driving to work and he was seeing unhoused people being moved and relocated, herded by LA police into less visible areas of the city, purportedly so they could receive support more easily, but really to hide the problem. And a lot of that support never arrived. Yep. We have the same thing happening in Seattle right now. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's, it's absolutely everywhere. And, and we are about to, I mean, as these eviction moratoriums expire mm -hmm. and people have back rent due, yeah. you know, we're going to, we're, it is a cascade, an absolute apocalypse of housing is about to be upon us. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and so it's just going to get worse and it's, it's, it's scary and it's tragic. One thing I learned recently is that more than 75% of people who are substance dependent and unhoused uh, were not substance dependent when they became unhoused. Hmm. The substance dependence is a coping mechanism for the absolute horror of not being treated as, as worthy of being sheltered. Yeah. Um, and I think that that really speaks volumes to exactly what we're condemning people to. And what we see in the, uh, in the episode that the sanctuary system uh, in that world uh, is eventually challenged and dismantled um, in the wake of the Bell Riots, uh, which is an uprising in the sanctuary over the conditions and specifically the murder of the activist Gabriel Bell. And they're specifically called riots. They're not called the Bell Protest or the Bell March or sit-in. You know, it's they're riots. The people of the sanctuary are starved and they're oppressed by the guards and authorities. They're undersupported medically and they've had enough and they make their voices heard. And it's a situation that like I was speaking about before, where <laughs> Star Trek fans can see something like that and go, yeah, good. They did the right thing. We're going to fix that problem. And things worked out. And then they watch TV, they watch the news, and they go, oh, my God, that Foot Locker. What, what are these people doing? 
Mm-hmm. They don't see yeah. the connection between those clearly in my mind, uh, connectable uh, expressions of emotion. Well, it, I think it's, it's, again, it's a lot easier when you, it, <sighs> homeless people are, I mean, they're, they're as individual as any other group, right? Um, yeah. But a lot of them are difficult and inconvenient and sometimes hard to get along with. Um, and wouldn't you be difficult and inconvenient and hard to get along with if you were having to live in those kinds of conditions? Yeah. I, sh- I know I sure as hell would be. Yeah. I mean, I'm difficult and inconvenient and hard to get along with anyway, <laughs> so it would just be worse. But, um, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think, you know, people are, uh, they're so uncomfortable when they look into the face of, of people in this reality, whereas in people who are oppressed in this reality. Whereas when they're watching Star Trek, I mean, you get to know Cisco as, you know, he's, he's father of the year, right? right? (laughs) He's, he's, he's a a Federation captain. (laughs) Yeah. Like, and, and so when you see him in that situation, you already know him as a human being. Whereas if you're walking down the street and somebody is, filthy and not wearing their shoes and yelling at someone you can't see, you know, you're, you're not going to see the Benjamin Cisco inside that person. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's really a matter of, of, um, I think figuring out how to help people see the humanity that's right in front of them. But again, it's like, we get, we get so flooded um, in the face of someone suffering, like I, I can't walk up to that person, you know, as privileged as I am, it's not like I can walk up to that person and solve their problems. Right. Like there are, there are myriad systemic and interpersonal and medical and financial and behavioral issues that lead somebody to that point. And I can't fix that in that moment and not being able to fix it in that moment. I have a choice of either, shutting myself off from the discomfort of looking at that person suffering or having enough compassion for myself and for them to then figure out, okay, what can I do about the larger systemic issues at play? And, and that goes back to my talk, right. About when, you know, we, when we know what to do and we can do it, we do do it. And when we don't know what to do, we our impulses to shut down. Um, and, and we are, and, and the impulse to shut down is aided and abetted by the ways in which culturally we are taught to dehumanize the people who are suffering the most. Um, and again, I think it would be, you know, past tense did a, a beautiful job of laying that out for people, but it, I mean, you know, you can, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. You yeah. know, you, you have, people have to make the decision that they want something different. Yeah. And what scares me the most, and I think it's supposed to in the episode is that, you know, we see, uh, Cisco and Bashir immediately like roll up their sleeves and, and try to help people. But as the episode continues, we see Bashir, who's often cast as, you know, a more naive person in their world, question how it could get there. And the episode literally ends with, you know, him asking, how did it get that bad? And I would hope, I know they're fictional people in the future, but I would hope they would have an answer to that, right? Like, how did you guys get there? If you didn't know how you fixed it, if it was literally just suddenly we have resources coming out of our ears and so there's no reason to fight anymore. Okay, great. But like, I don't know if we're going to make it to that. Like, I would hope that 
people in the 24th century, with their technology and with their histories and their computers, would have been able to look back. Their economic and social theorists would be advanced to the point to go, well, here's the problem. You got to get rid of the ideologues. You got to get rid of this. You got to get rid of that. And maybe it's just Maybe it's just Bashir himself who is not educated enough to know, but the fact that they dodged the bullet of all time and they don't know how they did it makes me go, uh, that bullet's still coming for us. Like, I don't know if we right. can dodge it. You know, I think the answer to the to the question of why that episode ended that way can be found in another DS9 episode. Do tell. Um, which is far beyond the stars. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so, you know, Cisco, this is the one where sort of this alternate universe, it's so beautifully done. God, that episode is just beautiful. Yeah. And Avery Brooks, I mean, um, just what a singular gift he gave us with that episode. Yeah. On multiple levels, um, both as a director and as a, as a performer. Um, you know, he writes this story, the story, the, the, the fictional Benny, Brother Benny, um, writes a, a sci-fi story. He's writing for a, a magazine, sci-fi magazine in the 1960s. And he writes a story about Deep Space Nine. Um, and the the captain or the, of Deep Space Nine is, is black. And of course, the, you know, the publisher of the magazine says, you can't have your... Uh, your your main character be a black person. Nobody's going to believe it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, somebody, I think uh, O'Brien, O'Brien's character comes up with, because, you know, of course it's, it's populated by, by all the, the Star Trek actors, but they're playing alternate roles. Mm-hmm. And so O'Brien's character says, you know, well, why don't you just make it a dream? Um, and who's doing the dreaming? Well, you know, a shoeshine boy, somebody without a lot of hope, right? right? Yeah. And the publisher, René Abergenois' character, um, sits, you know, says, well, that could make a difference. And, and he gets, they get around enough of the censorship that way. And I think that the same thing, right, for Cisco to say at the end of that episode, I don't know, is the equivalent of it was all a dream. Hmm. Because what they, at the end of the day, Star Trek, sadly, is still a profit-making enterprise. And they have, I mean, it is a billion, billion, billion dollar enterprise. Yeah. Right? And and so they have a vested interest in tiptoeing right up to the line of, of what they can get away with. And then they have to back away in order to assuage the capitalist system. So they couldn't, they couldn't have Cisco say... Well, they allowed the ultra wealthy to become so wealthy because the tax codes and blah, blah, blah. Like they couldn't have him go down the rabbit hole of Reaganomics, right? right? right. They yeah. couldn't have him go down the rabbit hole of, you know, 30 plus years of Republican led policy of deficit spending on tax cuts for the wealthy while slashing programs for everyone else. Um, you know, they couldn't talk about the fact that there's no health care. Right. Because if they'd actually like dived into the uh, to the issues, the real issues, then it would have all of a sudden it would have tripped somebody's uh, somebody's alarm bells and the show might have been canceled. Yeah. No. Boy, it's so weird. It's so weird, though, because DS9 and like the Voyager years were like the peak of the mountain of Trek. Like they really couldn't do any wrong at that point. I know they were worried 
about that. They were worried about things like the same-sex kiss, you know, and rejoined. But mm-hmm. it feels like it's a lot different than Kirk and Uhura kissing and then getting some, like, nasty letters. Like, if they felt like they couldn't do it then, it's it's so frustrating yeah. t- to think that, that that they would be beholden to those to those interests. But I guess they were in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, everyone's beholden to those interests. You're beholden to them. I'm beholden to them. <laughs> I don't make it, any money. I can do whatever I want. No, well, <laughs> on well, this show, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, on this show, right? But you have to make a living somehow. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have, I, I do. I told you I was wrapping up some billable hours, right? I do social media consulting, and I do social media consulting for people I really don't agree with politically. But oh, guess man. what? That's tough. You know, I would like for my husband to not have to be the sole wage earner for the rest of our lives. Yeah. And you know, while we're well off, we're not so well off that. We can't, you know, we have to, we can't work for the rest of our lives. So, you know, I, it's, we are all beholden to this system to one degree or another. There is no moral way to exist in capitalism. There is no moral way to exist in capitalism. We have to get rid of capitalism. I agree. You know, we were talking about the bell riots and in, in, in contemplating and thinking about them, I was trying to come up with other examples of protesting or civil disobedience that we see on Trek, and I wasn't able to come up with all that much. Um, I mean, the Bajoran resistance is a great the example. The entire Bajoran resistance, yeah, obviously, and um, the horrible uh, moment when the Vedic um, takes her own life in protest against the uh, the Dominion uh, occupation. Yeah. And a lot of those, um, we see a lot of those stories on DS9 being created as it was um, as a political series. Um, there's the one time that Wesley and some kids are kidnapped and he leads a hunger strike against yep. their captors, I think. Mm-hmm. Or we see like, uh, you know, we see them in historical settings often, like when Janeway's ancestor is protesting the development, you know, of the of the yeah. Millennium Spire or whatever it is in his mm-hmm. town. And, I, you know, I wonder... <laughs> I don't know. I, I I think because the Federation is purportedly a society where the populace is generally well represented in government and decision making, and it seems to be an essentially anti-violence society, I wonder what form of protest or what form protest would take in their society or political activism if it was necessary. Well, we, we do see it on that episode um, where Worf and Dax go on vacation. Yeah. To- yeah. And you see so there's a movement of people within the Federation who are saying like, the stop you know, having all, fun people. Yeah. You've all gone soft. Yeah. You've all gone soft. The Federation, you're, you know, you're mewling babies. You've all gone soft and yeah. the, the Dominion's going to have you for breakfast. And, um, <laughs> you know, and they, 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 they sabotage the weather system on Ryza so right. that people will stop right. having fun and pay attention. Yeah. Um, you know, and of course, Worf goes along with it. Cause yeah, he's Worf. Worf. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. It's so. Uh, <laughs> we we yeah I mean well I guess they're they're different than humans but we you know it rises a place where you know we pe- see people enjoying themselves often sexually and we don't get I don't know we don't get a sense at least early in the episode that the protesters are have a good point you know in fact like you said they try to take over the weather station not great but at the start of the show they're passing out flyers they're telling everybody to come to the speech later. And what I thought was really cool is that, like, people do. They could be playing volleyball or sunbathing or doing Jamaharom, but they're like, yeah, let's check this out. And they hear the uptight guys give their speech, and they're like, yeah, it's not for me. I'm going to do some yeah. Jamaharom, but you guys do your thing. Yeah. And I, I just love this idea that people are willing to hear out opposing, opposing points of view and decide if they want to do something different, but they're okay with it. People do their own thing. And it's like this less 
just dogmatic view of policy or just, you know, open communication between groups until they try mm-hmm. to take over the weather system. Of course, that's not going to be a good thing. Right. Right. Um, I'm trying to think, I mean, there, there were times when like pretty early on, I think it's season two Voyager comes across a species that has a space folding device and Janeway, you know, says, no, we can't, Mm -hmm. they won't share it with us and we're not going to try to, you know, and, and Tuvok and Torres and some of the other people actually end up, um, getting their hands on this device. Yeah. And, uh, in some, I mean, dis, disobedience in service of something you believe, and they truly believed this was the right thing to do. Yeah, um, that is a form of protest. Yeah, and they paid the price dearly for it when they damaged the ship, and it didn't end up working anyway. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, you've got you've got Seska, who's always, I mean, obviously she's a Cardassian agent, but. Uh, sorry, I hope I didn't spoil that for anybody yeah. um, <laughs> at this point, you know, 25 years too late. Um, but, you know, you've got Seska, uh, who is, um, you know, always agitating for mutiny. Um, I think she's, you know, she's got a uh, very complicated backstory. But, you know, so there, there, there are people within the context of the Federation who have valid viewpoints that aren't represented and they do protest. I mean, the Maquis is, you know, we've, we've talked about them already, but I think they're a really pertinent example. Yeah. Um, I'm saying, Hey, like you're not, you're not representing us here. You are caving into these Cardassians, um, you know, for a treaty, which, you know, I mean, on the grand scale, like, do we want to end a war or don't we, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. are we going to sell out Federation citizens in order to do it? I don't know. And even like Wesley Crusher, who in that episode that you mentioned uh, basically protests like the decision to remove the people from the planet and gives up his commission in Starfleet and really mm-hmm. kind of checks out of the Federation and society at large by just saying, look, right. I'm going to go with Easy Rider here and we're just going to go, you know, search the galaxy. But I'm specifically doing this because I want to explore, but also I don't want to do this anymore. I don't like I don't like what's the what, what apparently the Starfleet has become, or maybe where the Federation is going. Even though my entire family has been military officers and has served, like I, I'm going to do something else because I don't agree with this. Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. And I think the episode is called Journey's End. Yeah, for that reason. Yeah, I was thinking about um, just as we uh, wrap up here. I was thinking about um, modern protesting and how you know when people think about protesting they think about probably like holding up signs and saying hell no we won't go or or whatever Mm -hmm. but the kinds of things that you have to think of to be prepared for contingencies in protests the the changing form of them and the changing role of technology has really made protesting i think a lot different and more complicated in the 21st century Mm -hmm. and just thinking about people like you being out there and having the tools of the internet and smartphones, you know, and social media to organize, but also to um, plan your routes and things like that. Like, how is that? How have those tools helped you personally uh, uh, be active uh, when you're protesting? Well, I think I want to back up a little bit. Sure. Um, so the way that I became, uh, I guess you could say, radicalized. Yeah. You know, I always considered myself a feminist. Um, 
but I really was uh, a a corporate feminist. I was not a uh, an intersectional thinker until I began to experience and interact with black women on feminist Twitter who were talking about their experiences of sexism as it was impacted by racism mm-hmm. and the ways that those, you know, that rape culture impact impacts black women specifically hmm. the way that, um, that poverty impacts black women specifically and starting to understand, um, that just because I am a woman does not mean that I don't experience privilege. And just that flip of a switch took me down a rabbit hole. So from the beginning it was, you know, technology was part of what got me even into a headspace where I felt like I understood the problem enough to protest it. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of how it impacts our ability to organize, I mean, you know, we, I learn about what's happening um, from the Twitter accounts that I follow. I, you know, I use different encrypted channels um, for different things, you know, Signal, Keybase, um, Slack, which is not encrypted, but also incredibly useful. Um, you know, to communicate with people. Um, but, you know, at what I would say, like, is the question about how people can use technology to engage with protests and get more active? Or is the question about how does how do protesters use technology? Because I'm, I'm open to talking about how protesters use technology to a point. But I really would prefer not to get too deep into it, if that's if that's OK. Yeah, I understand. Um, that. OK. Yeah. I mean, there's there are there are tools that we have and we use them. Um, and, and I think it's, it's safe to say that, you know, if you, if you really want to understand more about how protest plays a role in, in protests, come on down, um, (laughs) and join us, uh, bring your gas mask and, uh, (laughs) bring, bring sturdy, bring, bring your gas mask and some sturdy shoes Yeah, and, uh, and bring your privilege. If you've got it, bring your privilege. Right. Um, you know, uh, I would say find your local Antifa on Facebook and on Twitter and start there, um, follow accounts whose whole, you know, their whole title is ACAB, ACAB, all cops are bastards. Right. Right, Like, you know, if you, if you really want to, if you really want to come find us, we we're out there and we're talking about what we're doing and we're requesting that, that white bodied wealthy individuals get themselves into the lines because the cops are not going to treat you and us, frankly, the way that they will treat poor and black people. Right. Um, and, you know, show up, take pictures, take videos, be very careful when you, I mean, I cannot stress this enough. Do not get people's faces. Do not take pictures of protesters' faces. If you can record and blur people's faces later before you post on social media, if you're live streaming, keep your phone pointed at the cops. Mm. Do not give them an opportunity and when I say them, I mean law enforcement and I mean um, fascist, uh, you know, vigilante orgs, uh, any opportunity to use facial recognition software on any of us because we're in enough danger as it is. Yeah. But, you know, but yeah, get get thee to the lines, man. We need you. You know, I ask mostly just in context of a connection to Star Trek, which is that in their world... And we never really get it. We don't know if they have social media, mostly because it wasn't invented like when they were writing these Star Trek shows. (laughs) But like, we don't see that, but we can assume that they have like free communication across the Federation. You can ostensibly contact anybody at any time. And also that your voice can be heard. I'm sure they have some form of 
public forum, you know, or address. I mean, they do have a Federation news service. They do. And again, we don't really see that very much either. But I'm wondering if it's it's something that they take for granted. You know, hopefully the government of the Federation is always willing to let people express themselves. But should that ever change, I'd imagine that communications could be limited or cut off. uh, Oh, yeah. And people would find themselves stuck on a planet with no way to contact anybody or report on what's happening. It's something that we see in our own world with governments restricting Mm -hmm. access to social media, literally turning off the internet in their country to keep people from organizing or reporting on what's happening. And again, you know, I think we've established that Trek is willing to go a certain distance in order to tell these stories, but not necessarily as far as they need to go. But um, if we ever saw a story like that on Star Trek, I bet that you would see uh, something like that. Star Trek has always been, you know, it's about the future, but it's always been about what's going on right now, you know. And mm-hmm. so, as you said before, just wanting to see CBS dig in more to kind of what's happening, um, that's a scenario I could see happening something somebody doing something on a planet and not wanting anybody to know about it and then somehow taking out subspace communication or, or limiting people's access poor jake when he was on the station he's writing his articles about the war and then he has to like and wayun just nukes his ability to get it right, out he has to like upload them or something so he has to go to wayun and go hey can i upload my story he's like no nah, man a little later that's fine i mean that's when he gives them to mourn right yeah right yeah <laughs> good old mourn yeah yeah, the idea that uh, the Dominion, I guess, can just flip the internet switch and then uh, the whole station's just cut off. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing is like Trek's technology. I mean, being able to say, you know, computer, where is Commander Dax? Commander Dax is in her quarters. <laughs> yeah. Like that is some surveillance state shit. They are a level. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, like, thank God that there's like no abusive boyfriends in the Federation. Like. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's, Jesus, primany. There's some people I would really prefer not to be able to just find me. That's a little bit um, of fiction, too, I think. Yeah, they yeah, are, they are, they are exactly. comfortable with a level of uh, a lack of privacy that is um, somewhat remarkable well, to us. Know, that's what happens when, you, when you're when you in a, a military situation. They are in the military. Situation, yeah. But, like, we really don't, you know, we really don't get a sense. Or, like, the fact that, like, Gold Dukat, even when he's on the run, can like find his way, you know, get, get a message into the major's quarters, Yeah, you know, like yeah. talk about invasive. So, you know, I mean, there are lots of, I mean, that's the thing is it's Star, Star Trek is, you know, it's just a, it's just a paper moon at the end of the day. Like it, <laughs> yeah, it really nice. is just, it's just a story. Yeah. Um, but, but what it, what it brings up for us is not. Yeah, that's true. And, yeah. We, we are uh, to, um, to circle back to far beyond the stars, we are the dreamer and the dream. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much, Tay, for talking with me today. And thanks for the work that you are doing to make our world better. Let people know where they can find you online. Well, let's see. I am. You can go to tayphoenix.com. That's T-A-E, phoenix.com. That's my website. Sure. Um, I'm getting ready to update that. Uh, and... Um, you can find me uh, anywhere your social information is being sold to advertisers, like <laughs> on Facebook at t- uh, Facebook, you know, dot com slash Tay Phoenix. Yeah. Um, although, you know, I'm I have no personal profile on there anymore, and I'm contemplating just nuking my whole presence on the site because Zuckerberg is letting white nationalists just run riot. Yeah. Uh, it's like he's forgotten his ancestors were oppressed. Um. And uh, Twitter is my my favorite um, 
my favorite social platform. Sure. I'm on Instagram. It's I, you know, I, I kind of, I find Instagram to be a little eh, whatever, but yeah. you know, I'm trying to decide whether I want to have a TikTok presence or not. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, will you be able yeah, to? <laughs> That's another question yeah. entirely. Um, but you can you can find me on Facebook and Twitter for sure. Sure. Um, and uh, and you can you know you can find my music on Spotify and iTunes and Bandcamp and all the places. Great. And you have a merch store on your website too. I do, and uh, I should note that the my the the various and sundry items in that store I don't make a ton of money from them. Uh, I give a lot of that money to organizations that are run by and for marginalized people. So I've got mm-hmm. a whole series of t-shirts, for example, that say forced birth extremism kills women and or okay. forced birth extremism kills trans people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and all of the proceeds from that go to the yellow hammer fund, which provides abortions to the most marginalized people in the state of Alabama, you know, so like there's every, every piece of like, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to make a bunch of money off of this. Like I think yeah. I, I don't, I think I, I really abhor resistance grifters. There are people who are just making an arm and a leg. Um, people like Sean King and Amy Siskind yeah. um, who are making an arm and a leg off of um, selling books and having a Patreon empire and whatever else. Um, and uh, I think we need to be, this is not a profit making enterprise. This is, this is a way of, of trying to right some historic wrongs. So um, if folks do want to buy stuff on my store, just please know that I, it's not, I'm not trying to make a, make a buck off of that. Sure. Well, thanks again for sitting down with me. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Live long and prosper. You too. Your Honor, a courtroom is a crucible. In it, we burn away irrelevances until we are left with a pure product, the truth, for all time. Oh man, this is so intense. Data is on trial for his life. I know. This episode, The Measure of a Man, is based on the Supreme Court's Dred Scott decision of 1857. And every week on Backtracking, we take a look at the real-world events that inspired classic Star Trek episodes. Sorry. Who are you? <laughs> We're the hosts of Backtracking. I'm Caliban. You will both be taken to the brig and from there to the nearest star base, where you will answer charges for what you have done. And I'm Gooey Fame. This is not a game. This is life and death. You can follow us on Twitter. Backtracking is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You go f*** yourself. <laughs>